0: Welcome to Reconquest on the Crusade channel of the Veritas Radio Network. This is Brother Andre Marie coming to you from St. Benedict's Center in Richmond, New Hampshire. Our websites are Catholicism.org and Reconquest.net. My email address is bam, bam, at Catholicism.org. I can also be found easily on Twitter, at Brother underscore Andre, and on Facebook. The topic this evening is Heretics, Apostates, and Schismatics, oh my. This is intended to be a continuation of my discussion with uh, Mr. Ryan Grant, Latin translator extraordinaire and managing editor of Mediatrix Press, who uh, published the book translated and published the book on the church militant from the De Controversies of St. Robert Bellarmine. I said it was intended to be that um, because due to some um, technical or perhaps not entirely technical difficulties, I am unable to get uh, Mr. Grant on the Skype line right now. Um, If it should happen that he contacts me during uh, my first segment here, I will um, just sort of... um, Cut the first segment a little short, and then we will resume with Ryan Grant. So I named it that, Heretics, Heretics Apostates, and Sismatics, oh my, um, obviously for some comical value. But also, in order to get across the fact that tonight we were going to discuss how those particular categories of people are not... Members of the church, according to Saint Robert Bellarmine, in the book that we are discussing. So again, if if it should so happen that we are um, that Ryan contacts me while we are uh, recording this session, I'll sort of uh, wrap things up here with my general opening remarks, and then we will go to him. Um, Otherwise, I am now winging it, and I am going to talk about the Catholic Counter Reformation, or I should say, it's it's got two names, and it's got two names for very good reasons. The period under discussion, which is the the time roughly beginning at the at the time of the Council of Trent, which lasted from sixteen forty five to rather fifteen forty five to fifteen sixty three. Beginning around that time, the Catholic Church responded to the challenges of a doctrinal and disciplinary nature that came our way, came Came the way of the Catholic Church um, through the um, so-called Reformation of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and company. The various uh, Protestant um, revolutionaries that are that are historically often called uh, reformers, we contend, of course, that they did not reform anything, so we don't think they're worthy of that name. But the Catholic Church's response to that challenge is sometimes called the Counter-Reformation. Now there are reasons against using that name, and the principal reason against using that name is it makes it sound as if the Catholic Church is somehow against reform, which is not the case because there have been many, many periods in the history of the Church which were known to be periods of reform, not the least of which is this very period under discussion, but there were previous periods which were also known to be periods of reform or reformation, so there's, that's one reason that, we, that uh, the name Counter-Reformation is bad. But in as much as the name Reformation stuck to what the Protestants call their little thing, then calling it the Counter-Reformation simply says that we oppose that. So just going by sort of conventions of language because Reformation stuck, um, then it's not so bad to use the term Counter-Reformation. But there is, a, there is another term called Catholic Reformation, which is another name for this uh, epoch under discussion, beginning again roughly at the time of the Council of Trent, which began in in 1545. Why would we call it the Catholic Reformation? Because in addition to responding to the heresies of the so-called reformers, the heresies of um, Martin Luther and John Calvin and um, Ulrich Zwingli and the Anabaptists and all of the other different reform groups, the reason that, uh, we, we, in addition to responding to them, there was also the much-needed work of reform. So, this actually agrees with one of the contentions of the reformers, which is that the Catholic Church was in need of reform. Of course, it was a need of reform. The Catholic Church, the true church, is often in need of reform. This is one reason we have ecumenical councils, of which there are 21. And before the time of the Council of uh, Trent, there had been numerous um, councils beforehand. If uh, Going off the top of my head, Council of Trent was council number 20. Yeah, Vatican II was... Um, no, Vatican II was 21, Vatican I was 20, Council of Trent would have been 19. So before the Council of Trent, we had 18 councils, and most of them were called with some agenda of reforming something or other, and this is very necessary in the life of the church. You have periods of decadence and so forth that need to be fixed, need to be um corrected, new, new um, uh, disciplinary things need to be addressed, as well as doctrinal matters, heresies that need to be corrected and orthodoxy maintained. The, the business of the Council of Trent actually undertook both the counter-reformation aspect of attacking the false doctrines of the so-called reformers, and it also undertook the agenda of authentic reform. And in what could we say that the Catholic Church needed to be reformed authentically? Well, in a lot of things, a lot of things. First of all, we can talk about non-resident bishops, bishops who were bishops of their different um, dioceses or archdioceses, who did not reside in those dioceses. Uh, and it was a, a, a tremendous deprivation of the faithful for the faithful and the clergy in those places when the bishop was not resident there. There was a corrupt system of multiple benefices, meaning, That for every office in the church, one gets um, a stipend that goes with it, a salary, so to speak. And people uh, would arrange to have multiple benefices. You'd be abbot of this monastery, abbot of that monastery, bishop of this diocese, bishop of that diocese, canon of this cathedral chapter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you didn't actually do the functions that were obligatory for that office, but you raked in the bucks. That were associated with it. Now, you know, yeah, this is dirty Catholic laundry being aired out. These are facts of history. And if we choose to whitewash these things, then uh, shame on us, because Catholic Church history is not simply hagiography, huh? The the history of the Catholic Church is not just the history of the lives of the saints. You can read the lives of the saints uh, in every century and get a fairly impressive um, history of the church if you read very good, beefy, informative, historical lives of the saints. But if all you read is the holy stuff and the edifying stuff— uh, then um, it's it's good to be edified, but you're leaving off the fact that there are a lot of shadows as well as um, bright lights in the history of the church, and you might not be equipped to address the objections of people who know about those shadows. And you can say, yeah, but you had popes that did this, and you had little papal bastards running around the Vatican and so forth, um, and this pope and that pope had mistresses, and this one and that one was homosexual or whatever— this stuff's true. It happens. It's a fact. And we don't want to whitewash this history of the church. Some of our best Catholic historians have told all, told the story of the church, warts and all. And that really is how it ought to be told. I'm not saying we need to, t- to teach children this. Um, <laughs> but I'm saying that, that at, at a level when you become adult— Uh, In your faith and adult in your approach to the study of history, you should read about it, warts and all, at least to know that the warts exist. You don't have to go into all of the um, disgusting um, um, substrata of the warts in order to know that warts are there. Now, um, you're listening to Reconquest on the Crusade Channel of the Veritas Radio Network, radio the way it should be. We're talking about the history of the Catholic Reformation or the so called Counter Reformation. There are some very important aspects of the Counter Reformation that frequently, frequently, frequently get overlooked. Um, It is a fact that the Counter Reformation took far too long to get underway. Why? Well, think of the government. Think of our modern government here in the United States of America. We have a corrupt government, we have have a, a, a bloated, fat, Corrupt, uh, bipartisan system of um, financial um, uh, non-accountability of people living off the 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 fat of the government of the government not knowing its place of the government being a, a, a persistent warfare state of people in both parties getting um, money from special interest groups that they assist depending upon how they vote in Congress or how they act um, in their various official positions in presidential cabinets or so forth. In other words, you've got a very corrupt system. And if you don't think that this is a corrupt system, corrupt government that we're living under, well, maybe you ought to look at the news a little bit. So we have a very corrupt government. Now, is it likely that that government is going to want to reform itself? Are the people who are doing these things likely to want to change when they're doing it all to their advantage? Uh, Given the tendencies of human nature, the obvious question, the answer to that question is no. Same thing in the church, okay? You've got a human element. Yes, the Holy Ghost is the soul of the church Yes, the church is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Yes, the principles for reform are always there. The grace is always there. That's a given, but that does not mean that humans will avail themselves of that grace. And therefore, when you read the history of the church, you will find that there are times of uh, epic failure in the history of the church at doing certain things. And you will find that um, there's massive corruption on a wide scale in the clergy or in religious life, in in the um, civil ruling class, um, and in, in various strata of the church. And that would include, of course, the laity as well. Now, having said that, we also have saints. Having said that, we also know that there is holiness that's to be observed in the church throughout every era, and when you read the history of the church and the lives of the saints, you will realize that the ones who were calling for reform at the time that the church most needed it were precisely those people, the saints, and you would have people like St. Catherine of Siena, who on the one hand said that the pope was sweet Christ on earth— And at the same time would write to a pope in her own lifetime and say, I can smell the stench of the sin on the papal court all the way from Siena. And she's writing, of course, to the pope who was living in Avignon at the time, which he shouldn't have been. He should have been in Rome. In doing this, St. Catherine of Siena shows us that, yes, we have incredible and profound respect for these offices in the church, the priesthood, the episcopacy, uh, and especially the papacy, but all of them as a divine foundation. But at the same time, it is not a superstitious worship of men. It is not a... a, um, a, a oversight, deliberately overlooking the sins of men and the corruptions of men and saying, no, it's perfectly okay uh, for bishops and priests and popes to do things that are uh, immoral and unjust and not faithful to their state in life or to their vocations. Um, No, I mean, to do this is to be um, naive at best and uh, dishonest at worst. And that's not what the religion is. We have to be honest about the religion. So this is a fact of history. You have corruption in the life of the church, and you have also great saints who are calling for reform all throughout the history of the church. And those are the ones who lead the movements away from corruption and always, though, in the name of Catholic orthodoxy. And this is what makes the Catholic Reformation distinct from the Protestant Reformation, so-called, which sought to reform things— but in a way that was entirely heterodox, and which instituted heteropraxy.? Huh? Martin Luther, of course, besides instituting heresies, besides, um, you know, attacking Catholic doctrines that were perennial doctrines, Besides doing all that, he also instituted disciplinary practices, or rather, violated perennial disciplinary practices in the church. Not the least of which was his own vows as an Augustinian friar, and the vows of the woman whom he took to wife. By the way, it was an invalid. It was an invalid marriage because Catherine von Bora was no more in a position to marry than Martin Luther was, they both being vowed to um, celibate chastity and not able to contract the sacrament of marriage because of it. So, the, uh, the, the on the other hand, when you look at the great saints of the Catholic Reformation, like Saint Robert Bellarmine, like Saint Andrew Southwell, or Saint Robert Southwell, like um, Saint Peter Canisius, and I'm just naming Jesuits, but I, I certainly don't mean to get stuck in a Jesuit rut. Uh, any of the great saints of the Counter Reformation or the Catholic Reformation, they reformed the church in the uh, it, always heading in the area of orthodoxy, completely faithful to perennial Catholic doctrine. They said. Yes, we need to address these areas of corruption. We need to address the non-residence of bishops. We need to address monks and nuns and uh, priests not being faithful to their state in life, not being uh, properly formed for their state in life. You know, one of the one of the reasons it's often given for the existence of the uh, Catholic. Uh, rather counter-reformation, Protestant Reformation, is that there was a tremendous amount of corruption on the part of Catholic um, religious monks, nuns, uh, who were um, not faithful to their vocations. They were not properly um, formed. And the same thing with the clergy, the priests. And what To what do we owe this? Well, one of the theories is that we owe this to the fact that the Black Plague had killed a disproportionate amount of priests, of religious, of monks, of nuns, because they were working with the plague victims. And the church, therefore, lowered her standards for clergy and religious. And this prepared, or rather failed to prepare, a generation of properly formed, pre-clergy, episcopacy, the bishops, and um, uh, also religious monks and so forth. And the church, having lowered her standards, you had a lowering of the bar, which helped to facilitate a system of corruption. You had less prepared people the counter reformation shows us an intense focus on formation disciplinary formation ascetical formation the formation of the intellect and so forth so this is a very very real very very important aspect of the of the prehistory to the to the to the um, protestant reformation and these aspects had to be addressed at the Council of Trent. Now I have good news for you, and that is that my my winging it section of this show is brought to an end at the end of this first segment because Ryan Grant has officially contacted me on Skype. I was wondering that worried that maybe he was caught in Turkey during the coup d'état, but apparently he's uh, he's still in, safely in Washington State. So we're going to. Um, uh, close the first segment now. We'll be back with our guest, Ryan Grant. This is Reconquest on the Crusade channel of the Veritas Radio Network. Radio the way it should be. You're listening to Reconquest with Brother Andre Marie. Seeking that which was lost and fighting for it. Exclusively on the Veritas Radio Network's Crusade.